Week nine, learning to depend. We've seen David go from this dirty shepherd boy who was a great musician to defeating giants to calming King Saul with his music to finding favor with the king, winning battle after battle. And then the same king who he calmed down and served all of a sudden started getting a little jealous and started throwing spears at David. King Saul wanted to kill David and David was at, is at this place where he's escaping the land and now he is in this four-year, what we believe to be a sojourn. And if you don't know what that is, last week we defined that word sojourn as a state of temporary dwelling. David has gone from living in fields to serving in a palace to being living in the palace to the king trying to kill him. And now he's in a temporary place of a sojourn. He's wandering. He's in the season of temporary. I think a lot of people can identify with that. You're wondering why you're here. You're wondering why you're in this moment. And you're wondering when the heck God is going to get you out. Because I come to church, I read my Bible, I pray, and I'm still in a season where I don't want to be. Can anyone identify with that? Well, last week we saw David go into this town called Nob in Gath, and he saw a priest. And he received holy bread. We saw that the first place that David went when he was escaping King Saul was the temple the presence of God. He was greeted there by a priest. He was giving holy bread. And behind the ephod, behind the thing that the priest wore, there was a weapon laying down. And if you remember the weapon, just shout it out real quick. Good. It was Goliath's sword. One thing I didn't mention last week that I think you should know, it's kind of cool that the, the, the town called Nob in Gath is actually the birthplace of Goliath. So the first place David went to the temple where the presence of God was, was in a town where everyone was his enemy. And a lot of times we always look for the presence of God in pleasant places, but I don't think we need to seek pleasant places. I think we need to simply seek being obedient to wherever God would have us to go because sometimes God has you go to the place where you don't really want to be, and quite frankly, sometimes it's the place that scares you to death. I'm pretty sure David was not happy about the fact that he was led to the place where everyone in town was behind the giant that he killed. Not exactly good, hello, I'm David type of environment. It's not the family reunion you want to go to. So David's probably freaking out a little bit. But he was obedient, and he followed where the Lord led. He didn't run away. He praised God. He gave him glory. But while he was praising God... Here's what he's going through. David starts hearing these whispers about who he is. And the last couple verses we read, just to recap, in chapter 21, tonight we'll be in chapter 22, but in chapter 21 and verse 12 it says, David heard these comments and he was very afraid of what King Ashish of Gath might do to him. So he pretended to be insane, scratching on doors, drooling down his beard. And finally, King Ashes said to his men, must you bring me a madman? We already have enough of them around here. Why should I let someone like this be my guest? 
David has been loyal to a king, loyal in working in fields, loyal as a shepherd, has had success after success, triumph after triumph, winning battle after battle, moving from level to level, and now he's in a place, after following God, that he's scared to death, drooling down his beard, and he's looking insane, and he doesn't know what to do. He's feeling defeated, and he's desperate. Has anyone been there? You've had great thing after great thing. You're following God, but now everything's falling apart. And it's like, I'm tired of people telling me, just pray about it. Amen? I'm tired of people telling me, go to church and it'll fix your problems. Because the fact of the matter is, going to church don't fix your problems. Going to church is about gathering with saints so we can seek God together so God can give you the instruction to fix yourself so that problems no longer affect you. And a lot of our problems, it says, it says in the Bible, they flow from heart issues. Yet we blame everything on Satan, and really it's not Satan, because let me, let me just reiterate something. Satan is defeated, so he has no bearing on my life. He's got nothing. So if I have an issue, it's not a demon, it's my heart has some fixing. I've got to find out where in my heart has bitterness grew, has envy grew, has jealousy grew, where has that taken root? David's at a place where he's gone through all this great stuff, promotion, 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 and now he's insane with drool on his beard. And he don't know what to do, and he starts hearing these whispers about they know who David is, and now he's scared to death. Now, we read last week that in the middle of this, we read a psalm that he was lifting up praise to God, and I've talked to you about the response that when we put it all to the side, we praise God because he has finally escaped this place. At the very end of the chapter, it says David escaped Gath. So we talked about how David, in the midst of not knowing what to do, in the midst of being afraid, he lifted up praise, and the result was that he was was that he escaped. Yay! Amen! Hallelujah! And we shout and praise about escaping. But let's look at where David escapes to. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. David did not escape and get to another palace. He didn't escape and get to a nice house. He, did, he didn't escape and got, get to a nice sandy beach with a margarita and Jimmy Buffett playing. He escaped and went, the first place he went to was a dark, gloomy, depressing cave. And most believe he was there for about three to six months. What do you do when you get out of one situation and you escape not into a five-star luxurious circumstance, but you escape to one bad circumstance and end up in a cold, dark cave alone? All your dreams are shattered. You feel alone, and you're in another difficult circumstance. Because, see, we always pray, God, get me out of this. But then the next thing we get to, we expect it to be great. But sometimes when you escape one thing, 
You end up in the thing you didn't want to escape to. And then you get this mindset, I wish I could just go back to where I was because this is straight up hell on earth. But what if there's purpose behind it? See, this is where David's at. He, he, he's, he, he's gone from being surrounded by women singing that he is the greatest soldier. He's, he's, he's defeating tens of thousands. People singing his praise. People seeing him as a king. People exalting him. People seeing him as a great military leader. And now he escaped that. He escaped uh, this capturing of people in Gath to this cave where he's all alone. God has anointed David to be king. But let's just paint a picture here. He ain't king yet. Why? Why? God still has some making and forming to do. Because God sees something in David that says, even though I have anointed him as king, he's still got some things to learn before I let him walk into that destiny. And sometimes the best place for preparation and formation for your destiny is to get to a place where you no longer have anything because you no longer have anything that you can depend on. Because up until this point, David, he has learned how to be a skilled heart player. He's learned to be a great shepherd. He is a great fighter that he learned in those fields. He has, he's had favor in the courts of the king. But now everything he has ever relied on Fighting skill, musical skill, favor, it's all gone. And all he has now is a drooly beard in a dark cave. And no one's with him. Sometimes you've got to lose everything in order for God to remake you so that you have a chance to walk into your destiny. Because you've learned to depend on something other than your creator. And you wonder why, when you escape this circumstance, you're now in a seemingly worse one. It's not God saying, I'm punishing you because you didn't learn. It's now that I've released you from that, I'm going to take you to a deeper valley so I can take everything away that you've depended on. Because where I'm taking you, you can't depend on anything else but me because the level of favor and anointing, the level of destiny that I'm bringing you to, you have got to be able to handle that. And the only way you can handle it is knowing how to depend on God alone. So God says, David, where I'm taking you, you have got to learn dependence. So your next step, getting away from these guards and these people who love Goliath, you're going to a dark, gloomy, depressing cave all by yourself. And you're going to learn how to deal. Sometimes you've got to lose everything because God doesn't want you to rely on anything but him. In Psalm 44, verse 3, it says, They didn't conquer the land with their swords. It was not their own strong arm that gave them victory. It was your right hand and strong arm and the blinding light from your face that helped them for you love them. It wasn't anything they learned to do. It was God and God alone. I love that it says the blinding light from your face helped them. You know what the, 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 the sad truth is? Churches spend so much time speaking to darkness. We bind darkness. We want darkness to go. The issue is not the amount of darkness. The issue is darkness is not being dispersed by the light of his face. 
and the light of his face is not being seen because the only way you see the light of his face is through the glory that is present in his people. See, even the building shouting amen. The problem is not darkness. The problem is Christians saying, let us be the light of God. And the way you disperse more light is being submitted to be more, more dependent on him rather than your job skills, your people skills, your talents. It's let me depend totally on him so that all people see is every triumph of mine is because of the right hand and strong arm of my father. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Then he said to me, This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel, It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's army. It is totally on. He wants you to get to this place where everything can only be attributed to one thing, him. You'll never walk into the fullness of your anointing that God has placed on you if you are continually depending on everything but God. Let me give you some examples. We have this dream and this destiny that we want to be. But we have learned to depend on paychecks. But your dream should be bigger than your paycheck. We depend on our circle of friends. But your dream should be bigger than your circle of friends. Because sometimes your best friend is actually your worst enemy. Because sometimes the best friend you have is feeding into the one thing that is keeping you dependent on that relationship. Your best friend feeds your addiction. Not just drugs, I mean any addiction. Women. Acceptance. Anything. They feed it. And an enemy should really be defined as anything keeping you from walking in your next step with God. But we've become to depend on people. When God says, I'll provide you with whatever you need, sometimes you've got to walk out of one circle and embrace another one. Look around us. This should be a family where our lives are consumed with each other. Not we see each other once a week and say, bless you. That's why we're going to a smaller place. We should be celebrating Fourth of July together. We should be celebrating Christmas together. We should be shut up. We, we've been we've been seeing. We 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 should we we should be doing life together. For those of you that just heard me shut up, say shut up in the podcast. A church member was rebellious. Um, <laughs> we depend on pastors, but your dreams should be bigger than me. Your dreams should be so big that we should get to a point where I'm like, man, I don't know what the next step is. Let's just pray together. Because the fact of the matter is, if I can give you an answer to every step in your life, your dreams are not that big because they're not bigger than my own. I love it when people say, dude, I don't know. you got to pray about that. Like I was talking to a spiritual father of mine um, way before we announced that we were going to get a smaller campus, and I was sharing the vision that I wanted to go smaller, and I wanted to have a network of families rather than just, I, I'd rather have five campuses of 100 than one campus of 500. And I started talk, speaking this vision, and the thing they said, I don't know how to do that. I've never really seen it done effectively. I'll be praying for you. They supported it but they hadn't seen it. And that excites me. Because your dream should be so big that people have not seen your dream come yet. Like your destiny is not wrapped up in your job. 
And what happens is we live a life where everything is centered around our job. And when you get home, you're so tired that you do nothing else. But if your dream's big enough, when you get done with the thing that brings you bread, you take the rest of the time to sow into where you're going. Is this speaking to anybody? Okay. So God says, David, I'm stripping you of everything. Not because you've been bad, but because you're starting to depend too much on all these things that I gave you. And I feel like God wanted to say one thing tonight. He says, I didn't give you for these things. I didn't give you your skills, your talents, and your things for you to depend on. I gave you these things to manage them for appropriate times. There's a difference in managing the things God gave versus depending on things God gave. Because God doesn't want you to depend on things he gave. He wants you to depend on him. Because the things he gives you will change. We depend on, well, this is my spiritual gift. Let me open your eyes. You've got multiple. But we're starting to depend on this one thing that we find comfort in. Like, I should not depend on me being a musician. I've said that multiple times. My goal is to not be up on that stage. I love the fact that Tyler came through relentless Five, four and a half years ago and he couldn't play a lick and now he can serenade me whenever I need him to because he's become a great player that's, that's the vision for everything I want you to become teachers I want you to become visionaries I want you to become great business owners I want you to become not depend that's what God wants he wants us to become he doesn't want us to depend on the things he gives. Just depend on him. Because sometimes he's going to say, hey, I want you to go here. And your response is, I don't know how to do that. And God's like, exactly. Don't depend on the skill you have now. Depend on me to develop you into what I have you to become. Because it may be a totally different gifting that you don't have. And we say, I'm not ready. And God's like, exactly. Depend on me. This is, this is good stuff. Depend on me. So David is at this place where everything's taken. Let's read it again. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. David left Gath, escaped to the cave of Adullam, and soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented until David was the captain of about 400 men. He escapes to a gloomy cave and soon his relatives join and then 400 came. But what stands out to me are the two words. Soon his family came and then there were so many that came that he had about 400. In other words, there was some time between him being alone versus when people came. Soon they came, then more came. There was a time when David was alone. And I started to wonder, what did David do in this time of being alone? Because I can tell you what we do in our times of being alone. God, get me out. God, this is horrible. God, when are you going to do it? Sometimes I think we use, like, God will do it as a vice to just be lazy. God's going to take care of it. No, no, he's going to take care of it by giving you a step to take on your own. God says, I'm not going to manage your life. You're going to manage your life underneath my direction. 
but I can't make you take the direction because I'm so good that I gave you free will. So I wonder what David did. And as I was studying, not that I should be surprised, guess what he did? He wrote a psalm about it, about this time of being alone. He's bottomed out. He's in a downward spiral of events. He's lost his job. He's lost his wife. Let's not forget that. He married the king's daughter, and then he had to leave her. He's lost his home. He's lost his counselor. He's lost his closest friend. He's probably lost his self-respect. I mean, he's drooling on a beard and scratching on walls. And now he's sitting alone in the cave. And this is what he, he writes in Psalm 142, verse 1. Throw it up there. I cry out to the Lord. I plead for the Lord's mercy. I pour out my complaints before him. I tell him about my troubles. When I'm overwhelmed, you alone know the way I should turn. Wherever I go, my enemies have set traps for me, God. I look for someone to come and help, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares what happens to me. Now I pray to you, O oh Lord, I say you are my place of refuge. You're all I really want in life. Let, let, me, let me sum up what he's saying. I cry out. I pour out. I'm overwhelmed. I'm attacked everywhere I go. No one helps me. No one cares. David learned something very important in this cave that churches don't like to teach their people. It's okay to tell God how you feel. He doesn't start out by saying, God, you're going to get me out. He gets real with his father. I feel like no one cares about me. I'm overwhelmed. Every corner I turn, something worse happens. I can't get out of this pit. God, I'm over. It seems like a simple concept, but let's be honest. It's really easy to complain and say all these things to our friends and family, but very seldom do we get alone with God and say, God, look, this is how I feel. Because the church has taught when you pray, you should say, God, I love you, and God, I give you glory, and God, you're amazing. But no one tells us that it's okay to say, God, I am miserable. Because we've been taught, well, that means you're ungrateful. No, no, no. God wants to be your friend. What is the definition of a friend? Someone you have given access with to intimate thoughts that no one else has. And the problem is some of us are more intimate with people than we are with God. God says, I want your thoughts. I want your complaint. I, tell me everything. And David's learning in this alone time. Because the only alone time he has had up to this point is being surrounded by all these sheep, learning how to play music, having things to do, but now he's in a cave with nothing but a sword. He doesn't have his harp. He doesn't have his people. And all he can do is say, what the heck? I'm overwhelmed. I'm, I'm beaten up. I'm tired. I don't have anything. First Peter 5, 7, give all your worries and cares to God. Why? He cares about you. Psalm 55, 22, give your burdens, not just your praises, give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall. You want to know why we do slip and fall? The only way he permits you to not is because he's taken everything that you are going to slip and fall from. If you don't give him the stuff, you're going to slip and fall because you haven't given anything. 
Why do people slip and fall into old habits? Because we're trying to deal with the things making us want to slip and fall. God says, give me your burdens and I'll see to it that you never slip again, that you never fall again. Just give it to me. You know who the godly are? It's not the people who have the deepest understanding of them. It's people who have learned how to depend. David didn't start trying to build a harp so he could depend on his music. He, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't go out and look for sheep to bring in the cave that, so that he could do what he knows best. It doesn't say anything about him practicing fighting. He was depressed and lonely and he started saying, God, this is how I feel. He's learning to depend on him when there's nothing else to talk to, when there's no one else to voice your concerns to. There's no one else. And he's learning a very beautiful thing. All I've got is God. And if that's all I've got, that's a pretty awesome thing. We think it's wrong to tell God how bad life stinks. They think that being grateful means you never express your pain and your emotion. But for David, telling God how bad he felt with a raw honesty was the key to experiencing God in a lonely, dark cave. And no matter how dark and difficult your life is, just tell God how you feel. Get real with God. He wants it. The problem is we cloud the family of God with all our stuff without ever going to God first. Like we're built to tell each other, but th th this should be secondary. God says, Get, depend on me. Don't even depend on your church. They're there for you, but don't depend on what I've given you. I've surrounded you with people, but don't depend on what I've given. Depend on me. Someone shout, depend, depend. on God. That's all he wants. And I'm wondering if you realize that you had that access, that he's the best one to meet your needs, that he is the best one to give you the provision. Are you unloading for breakthrough or are you loading for pity? We love doing that. You don't know how bad I got it. I got this. I, you're wanting pity. You don't want breakthrough. You want breakthrough? Talk to that man. Talk to the good, good father. And the next two verses, he says in verse 6, Hear my cry. I'm very low. Rescue me from my persecutors. They are too strong for me. Look at this. The dude defeated a giant with a pebble and a sword. And now he's saying, they're too strong for me. Why? Because he's learning how to depend not on his past skill, just on God. Bring me out of prison so I can thank you. The godly will crowd around me for you are good to me. He asks, bring me out. I know the God, I, I know that the godly will crowd around me. And David proclaims, I know you'll do it, and you won't let me down. And after he has gone through this process of total dependence, God, this is where I'm at. This is how bad I feel. I feel like I'm failing. I feel this. I feel that. After he lays it all out, he writes another song. Look at this psalm, Psalm 57, verse 1. Is this good? Okay. He says, have mercy on me, God, have mercy. 
I'll look to you for protection. I'll hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. Look at this. He has gone from complaining to resting. I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. He will send help from heaven to rescue me, disgracing those who hound me. My God will send forth his unveiling love and faithfulness. I am surrounded by fierce lions who greedily devour human prey, whose teeth pierce like spears and arrows, whose tongues cut like swords. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. Look at this. He has gone from woe is me to who the heck do they think they are. My enemies have set a trap for me. Sure, I'm weary from distress. They have dug a deep pit in my path but they themselves have fallen into it. My heart is confident in you, O oh God. My heart is confident. No wonder I can sing your praises. He's saying, wow, no wonder I've gone from I'm depressed and I'm hurt and I'm overwhelmed and I'm going to die to no wonder I can sing your praises. My heart is confident in you. Wake up, my heart. Uh, uh, I, Wake up, my heart. Wake up, O liar and harp. I will wake the dawn with my song. I will thank you, Lord, among all the people. I will sing your praises among the nation. Your unfailing love is as high as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. After he lays it all out and says, this is how I feel, and this is how bad it is, and I'm never getting out, he starts coming alive, and he starts promising the Lord and committing himself to the Lord that what he will do with his new renewed mind and self, see, he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't stay in complain mode until provision comes. Because what we do is we'll complain and, and, and we'll, we'll do the God, here it is. But we think we're supposed to do that until God says, here. But before God says, here, David shifts. He goes from God, here, God, here, God, here, God, this is me, God, this is my situation. And then he says, when you answer that cry, I promise you with whatever you'll give me, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bring out the lyre. I'm going to bring out the harp. In other words, David doesn't just say, God, meet my need. God says, here's my need, and here's what I commit to do with whatever you supply. It's not just God, meet the need. It's committing that whatever, I, whatever you're going to give me, I commit that I'm going to steward it correctly. He knows that provision will come. So one, he lays out what his stresses is, and then two, he commits what he's going to do. He didn't wait for God to get him out. His conversation goes from here is what I have to here's what I'll do with whatever you provide. The problem is we're waiting on what he will provide before we commit to what we will do, and you wonder why you never get it. You know why? Because God says you have not depended on me. I don't want you to depend on what I will provide. I want you to depend on me and commit to me with whatever I provide because if I provide something that doesn't look like the solution, I can still use it better than what you think the solution will be. So can you please commit to me to, do, to use whatever I give you no matter what it looks like? <laughs> I'll commit to doing whatever you give me. I'll commit to using it and stewarding it no matter what it looks like. And that's 
the scary part of learning dependence. Because when you depend on God, you depend on his ways. And his ways are higher than your ways. And his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And they're so much above that sometimes the best solution is the most humble provision. Is this making sense? God, I need more. And God says, give more. That doesn't make sense. God, I ain't got the time for that. That's because your vision is only as big as what you think you have time for. If he wants total dependence, he says, where I'm taking you, I've got to see you manage every bit of your time as if you have none left. And when you value your rest over his call, it shows that you don't believe he will give you rest in the pursuit of the call. He says, I'll give you rest. And then we say, I can't because I need rest. See, we're, to we're totally backward thinking. We're not really depending on him. We're depending on our schedules. We're depending on our sleep patterns. We're depending on when we got to wake up in the morning. We're depending on how long our day is going to be. We're depending on what's in our pockets. We're depending on what we got to do. And God says, no, 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 no. Let's just strip all that away. He did it to Job. Job had everything. And God took it all away. And we love to talk about how Job was obedient. But most of that book talks about how he was questioning everything in the middle. We've got to learn to depend. No matter what happens. After all that, going back again to verses 1 and 2, 1 Samuel 22, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Dullam. Soon his brothers and his relatives joined there. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented until David was a captain of about 400 men. After David promised, this is what I'm going to do with what you gave me, God gave him. God sent him the need after David made the commitment. And the ones he needed, the army that he needed, were not perfect. They were discontented. They were in trouble. They were in debt. But remember what David promised. He promised. He said, I will sing your praises. I will wake up my heart, O liar and harp. I will make the dawn with, uh, with my song. I will thank you among the people, and I will sing your praises among the nation. Here's what happens. God says, okay, now that you're going to sing my praises among the nations, I'll give the people you need because they need to hear your praises because right now they got no praise left. And we always say, God, send me this, God, send me this, God, send me this. But you have no intention of ever singing his praises among the friends you need and the relationships you need. Because you, all you want is the friends and the relationships and the provision to meet your need. And God says, I don't want, I'm not going to give it to you just because you need it. I want you to commit what you are going to manage it with. Are you going to manage my provision for your benefit or are you going to manage it for mine? How dare I send you the key person to promote you if they don't know you love me? This, this, this is good stuff. And I, I'm not boasting, but can I just be honest? There's churches of thousands who should have stuff this good, and the 50 people in this room are getting it. What are you going to do with it? 
he commits to making God glorified among the people. The 400 men were together making God's name great in a dark, gloomy cave. And pretty soon, the depression of 400 turned into praises. And in verse 3 it says, Later David went to Mizpah in Moab. Look at that. He left the cave. He walked out. And he asked the king, please allow my father and mother to live here with you until I know what God's going to do for me. So David's parents stayed in Moab with the king during the entire time David was living in the stronghold. You see what? He left the cave, got his parents' safe quarters, and went back to the stronghold. You want to know why? God hadn't told him to leave yet. But then in verse 5, one day the prophet Gad told David, leave the stronghold. Return to the land of Judah. So David went to the forest of Hereth. God gave a word through the prophet it was time to leave. We always wonder, how will I know God's timing for me? Let him know what you're going through. Commit to what you're going to do with provision and wait for the word to come. Because trust me, the word and voice of the Lord is so clear, you'll know when it's there. God is not the author of confusion. So if you're confused about timing, it's not because you're not interpreting God. It's because God has not spoken. Because there's nothing about his voice that sounds confusing. When he speaks, it's clear. That's the biggest way to tell if you're hearing God's voice or not. If it's causing confusion and causing doubt, it's not his voice. Am I talking to anybody? Verse 6. The news of his arrival in Judah soon reached Saul. At the time, the king was sitting beneath the Tamaris tree on the hill of Gibeah, holding his spear surrounded by his officers. Listen here, you men of Benjamin. Saul shouted to his officers when he heard the news. Has that son of Jesse promised every one of you fields and vineyards? Has he promised to make you generals and captains in his army? Is that why you conspired against me? For no one of you told me when my own son made a solemn pact with that son of Jesse. You're not even sorry for me. Think of it. My own son, Jonathan, is encouraging David to kill me as he's trying to do this every day. And then Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing there with Saul's men, spoke up. He said, hey, Saul, King Saul, when I was at Nob, I saw the son of Jesse talking to the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub. Sure. Verse 10. Ahimelech consulted the Lord for him, and then he gave him food and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Look at this. David's bringing his complaints to God. Saul's bringing his complaints to his soldiers. David's fruit was that men surrounded him. Look at Saul's fruit, verse 11. King Saul immediately sent for Ahimelech and all his family who served as priests at Nob. And when they arrived, Saul shouted, Listen to me, you son of Ahitub. What is it, my king? Ahimelech asked. Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? Saul demanded. 
Why did you give him food and a sword? Why have you consulted God for him? Why have you encouraged him to kill me as he's trying to do this very day? But sir, Ahimelech replied, is anyone among all your servants as faithful as David, your son-in-law? Why is he the captain of your bodyguard and a highly honored member of your household? This was certainly not the first time I consulted God for him. May the king not accuse me and my family in this matter. I didn't know anything of this plot against you. Oh, you're surely going to die in Himalaya, along with your entire family, the king shouted. He ordered his bodyguards, kill these priests of the Lord. They're allies and they're conspirators with David. They knew he was running away from me, but they didn't tell me. But look at the fruit. Saul's men refused to kill the priests. David complained to the Lord, and he was surrounded with supporters. Saul complained to his men, and none of them had his back. But isn't that what we do? We give all our complaints to all these people, and you wonder why they're not with you when it goes down? Because that's the fruit of giving it to everything else but him. He says, give me everything and I won't let you fall. I won't let you slip. Give me everything. And then in verse 18, the king said to Doeg, you do it. So Doeg the Edomite turned on them and killed them that day. Eighty-five priests still wearing their priestly garments. Then he went to Nob, the town of the priests, and he killed the priest's family, the men, the women, the children, the babies, the cattle, the donkey, the sheep, and the goats. I want to point out something. Do y'all remember when King Saul lost his anointing? It was in chapter 15. God said, I want you to kill the Amalekite nation, all the men, all the women, all the children, all the babies, all the cattle, all the sheep, all the goats, all the camels, and all the donkeys. But he didn't obey. He kept the king to barter with and the best of the goats and the sheep and the cattle because he wanted to serve him. And at that moment, he lost all the favor. And now we see that he's completely destroying everything because Saul was more concerned with his needs rather than God's. And the beautiful thing about God is that the only plans that are perfect plans are God's plans. So when Saul executed an imperfect plan, God never told Saul to kill the priests and the families and the babies and the children and the goats. Saul did it himself. So when he killed everyone with this imperfect plan, do you think that plan worked in his favor? Huh? Look at verse 20. 1 Samuel 22, verse 20. Only Abiathar, one of the sons of Ahimelech, escaped and fled to David. The imperfect plan of Saul. One escaped because it was never in the cars to kill them all. One escaped and went to David. And in verse 21, when he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord, David exclaimed, I knew it. When I saw Doeg the Edomite there that day, I knew he was going to tell Saul. And now I have caused the death of all your father's family. You remember what David did wrong? He lied to the priest. The priest asked what he was doing, and David came up with a lie to protect himself. 
Now, God dealt with David. God dealt with David in that cave. David had some conversations. But just because God forgave David does not make David exempt from dealing with the fruit of his mistakes. David's forgiven, but he has got to manage the mistake he made. What was the mistake? He should have never lied because the provision was there. The meat, the table of the bread, remember, it was there. The sword of Goliath was there. He never had to lie because the priest didn't know. If David said, I need the bread, I need the sword, the priest would have gladly gave it to him. Because all the priests had the notion of David, this man serves King Saul. But he lied. And he caused all these priests and all these families and the whole lot of them to die. And what does he do? He's got to manage the fruit of the mistake. So he doesn't turn to God and say, why did you do this? Why did you let this happen? This isn't fair. Why did you take them? He looks at the dude in verse 23, and he says, because remember, God, whatever you give me, I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to stand for what's right. Stay here with me. Don't be afraid. I'll protect you with my own life, for the same person wants to kill us both. He steps up and manages his mistake. And he says, I'm standing with you. Because I'm not on my business anymore. And I'm not depending on my lies and my skills and my way of getting he, I am totally depending on God. And then he writes another psalm. Psalm 34, verse 11. Come, my children, listen to me. And I'll teach you to fear the Lord. You notice that? I'll pay attention right here. Notice what he did. He does not try to make this grandiose excuse as to why he lied. He says, I've learned from my mistakes. I've learned how to depend. Now let me teach you how to fear him like I do now. Let me teach you how to fear God. Because I'm at a place now where I fear him more than ever. A fear as in a reverence. A fear as in this total, I give God glory. And I'm no longer depending on my skill. I'm no longer depending on my words. I'm no longer depending on what has always worked for me. I'm just depending on him. Verse 12. Does anyone want to live a life that is long and prosperous? Then keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Look, he's addressing what he did. Turn away from evil, do good, search for peace, and work to maintain it. He doesn't say search for peace and peace will stay. He says once you get it, work to maintain. You will always be called to work and maintain what God gives you. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their cries for help. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. He will erase their memory from the earth. The Lord hears his people and they call to him for help. He rescues them from all their troubles. You see what he's doing? He's literally laying out his process in the cave. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to rescue each time. The Lord protects the bones of the righteous. Not one of them is broken. Can I just say this right here? If you are saved and a child of God, 
You may feel broken, but you're righteous. And he says, the Lord has a protection over you and your makeup, your bones are not broken. And some of us go through these times in life where I've had it, I'm done, but God says, let me remind you, you're not broken because I've got so much protection on you that nothing can break you. You're pressed, but you're not crushed. Your bones are not broken. Verse 21, calamity will surely destroy the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be punished. But the Lord will redeem those who serve him. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. You know what the cave of Adullam means? The word Adullam translated in the ancient text means place of refuge. And this says, no one who takes refuge will be condemned. He took refuge in a dark, cold, lonely place that could not be explained. A man going from triumph after triumph to victory to victory to dark and alone. But David's mind shifted. This place is not the end. This is my refuge. Because when I learn to depend on him, I'll be made renewed in my mind and I will be strengthened because I have got a destiny. And I'm not depending on how good my life is. I'm not giving up on how bad my life is. I'm not depending on the right person. I'm not depending on the right job. I'm not depending on anything. I'm simply saying, God, here I am. And whatever you give to me, I promise I'll manage it. I'll sing your praises. I will give you whatever I have. I will give you all of me. I commit myself to you. I'm depending on knowing that you are my refuge. You are my strength. And as long as I depend on you, I've got nothing to worry about. If we can get there, you'll be surprised how quick you get out of your cave. Because he loves you that much. He's jealous for your dependence. It's really simple. Learn to cast your cares on him, your complaints to him, your worry, your fear. Proclaim the promises that you have not received yet. And then commit to God that you will manage whatever breakthrough he gives. When you do that and you learn to depend, watch what God does. He'll take you to places you never thought you were worthy to be. He'll give you breakthrough that you never thought you'd see. Because he loves you that much.